The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Across all different etiologies of liver disease, it's really important to look at the ALT specifically. That's a marker of inflammation in the liver. And so these reference ranges that say that up to 40 and 50 for the ALT is normal, unfortunately, we're missing a lot of patients with liver disease by using those cutoffs. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This session will focus on an in-the-clinic article titled Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease. Our discussant for this podcast is Dr. Megan Gray, who is an assistant professor in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at UAB. She has particular interest in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and works in the liver transplant group. She focuses on dietary approaches to improving non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I believe you will find her discussion to be very complete and help you have a better approach to patients who you either know have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or suspect have that disease. Megan, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. I've been fascinated by non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and I've been confused with the terminology. When it first came out, I thought I knew that it was non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and now I see there's non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, there's non-alcoholic fatty liver, and there's non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. What's the difference between those, and why should we care? Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this. So I think it is important to understand the terminology. So non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or NAFLD, this encompasses the entire spectrum of fatty liver disease in patients who don't have significant alcohol consumption. So this can range just from simple steatosis to steatohepatitis to cirrhosis. And then when we break it down into non-alcoholic fatty liver versus non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, this is really histology differences. So in non-alcoholic fatty liver, these patients have more than 5% hepatic steatosis without any evidence of damage to the liver. So there's no lobular inflammation, there's no ballooning of the hepatocytes, and there's no fibrosis. And overall, these patients are at very, very low risk to progress to cirrhosis. Then when we look at the patients with non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, they also have more than 5% hepatic steatosis in the liver, but they do have evidence of damage. So they have hepatocyte ballooning and lobular inflammation, and they may have fibrosis, maybe just a small amount or maybe even cirrhosis. And we know that about 20% of these patients are at risk to progressing to cirrhosis and even liver cancer. So once we make the diagnosis of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, then we have to distinguish whether it's NAFL or NASH and worry a lot about the NASH more than we worry about the NAFL. Absolutely. So who gets this? What's the epidemiology? And I understand that it's increasing, unfortunately, dramatically. It is, absolutely. It's been a little bit difficult to establish the true prevalence because we know that different populations are at different risk and different ethnicities, different dietary patterns. And there's also been different sensitivities in the modalities that are used to detect the disease. 
But we think that globally, about 25% of the population is affected by NAFLD, and this has been diagnosed by imaging. The highest prevalence of disease is in the Middle East and both North and South America at about 30%. And the lowest prevalence is in Africa, about 13%. When we break it down, and the Dallas Heart Study was able to evaluate this in the U.S. population a little bit better. So still that average of about 30% over all ethnicities, but higher in Hispanics, about 45%, and about 30% in whites, and then about 24% in blacks. And then this has also been looked at between males and females, and we know that males are at significantly higher risk to develop NAFLD. So we estimate the prevalence about 42% in white males compared to 24% in white females. And then furthermore, it's been looked at in high-risk populations. So in patients who are obese, this has been looked at in Europe, we know that patients who have a BMI greater than 30 have about a 91% risk of having NAFLD and about 67% risk in patients with BMIs between 25 and 30. And even about 25% of normal weight individuals can have NAFLD as well. And when we look in the bariatric surgery population, there's been many studies. Fortunately, we've been able to get biopsies when patients are undergoing bariatric surgery. And the prevalence of NAFLD in this population can be as high as 97%, which is incredible. And as far as steatohepatitis, since we have biopsies in those patients, can be as high as one-third of those patients. Does the distribution between fatty liver and steatohepatitis change with higher or lower body weights? Yeah, so the best data we have really is from that bariatric surgery cohort. So the higher the BMI, the more likely to have the steatohepatitis. Right, because as someone who's normal weight, I was wondering, I assume I'm still at risk at normal weight. Am I at less risk for NASH and just at risk for NAFL? You know, I don't know that we have great data to differentiate between that, but certainly we do see people at normal weight who do have steatohepatitis, but I would say predominantly what we see is just that simple steatosis. So if you're doing outpatient medicine, and many of our listeners are primary care internists, when should we suspect non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and what is our diagnostic process? So I think as we talk about this, it's also important first to kind of talk about normal liver tests just for a minute. And so the reference ranges on labs will often tell you that the AST and the ALT can go up to as high as 40 or 50 and still be considered normal. But that's really not the recommendations that we have from our AASLD liver guidelines. And so for across all different etiologies of liver disease, it's really important to look at the ALT specifically. That's a marker of inflammation in the liver. And so in women, this number should really be less than 19, and in men, it should be less than 30. And so these reference ranges that say that up to 40 and 50 for the ALT is normal, unfortunately, we're missing a lot of patients with liver disease by using those cutoffs. So I think it's first important to recognize what is actually elevated liver tests. So I think the first thing you want to look for is at their liver test to see if they're elevated. And then the next step would be to do some sort of imaging. So certainly if you see steatosis or increased echogenicity on an ultrasound, that suggests that there's fat in the liver. If you have the opportunity to have a biopsy present from a surgery or some other reason, that's always helpful to look for steatosis. And then you really want to talk to the patients about their alcohol consumption. We often just kind of say, well, how much alcohol are you drinking? And the patient says, oh, not really that much. And we kind of leave it there. But in these patients especially, I think it's important that you break down what type of alcohol are you drinking? How big are the glasses that you're using when you pour yourself a glass of wine? And how often are you doing that? And we know that excessive alcohol in women is more 
more than 20 grams a day, which is really just about one drink, and more than 30 grams a day in men, which is about two drinks. So even at these kind of lower amounts of alcohol, they still can develop alcoholic fatty liver disease. So it's important to rule that out. So in the article that sort of stimulated this conversation, they talk about an alcohol liver disease NAFLD index that uses the mean corpuscular volume, the AST to ALT, the BMI, and gender to predict the likelihood of alcoholic liver disease. Is that helpful? Is that something that we should be doing when we suspect the possibility of fatty liver disease? I have to admit that I hadn't heard of this index before reading this article. I certainly think it seems like it could be helpful. I typically just take a history from the patient and go by that, but certainly having objective data such as this index certainly could be helpful. Okay, so we're now suspecting it. So let's say a patient comes in to see us and they have an elevated AST and ALT around 50. We don't have any other obvious diagnosis. What things should we look for and should we be doing imaging and trying to document that they have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? And so the follow-up question is, if we make the diagnosis, how is that going to change what we do and tell the patient? Great. So first we'll start with, they have elevated liver test. We've done some type of imaging that shows steatosis. They don't drink a lot of alcohol, but otherwise you need to rule out all of the other causes of chronic liver disease or elevated liver test. So typically when these patients come to see me, they get laboratory testing that looks for hepatitis B and C, for alpha-1 antitrypsin, hereditary hemochromatosis, for Wilson's autoimmune hepatitis, PBC, and PSC. So that's just kind of the standard evaluation that anyone gets when they come to see me. So certainly we know that we see plenty of patients who are overweight, who have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, every risk factor to have NASH. And then when you do the evaluation, it turns out that they have PBC. So we see that plenty of times. And so it's always worthwhile to go through those steps of doing the full serologic evaluation. And I think it's also important to know that as you're doing that evaluation, a lot of these patients will have elevated ferritin levels just kind of as a marker of systemic inflammation, but that does not mean that they have hereditary hemochromatosis. And so the screening test that we use for hereditary hemochromatosis is really an elevated transferrin saturation. So if the transferrin saturation is greater than 45%, that's when we start worrying about hemochromatosis. And it's not really based on their ferritin level alone. And then also these patients are likely to have low levels of positive anti-nuclear antibodies and anti-smooth muscle antibodies. And this has been looked at before by the NASH Clinical Research Network. And they have found that about 20% of patients with NASH or NAFLD will have low-level positive autoantibodies. And they were able to biopsy these patients, and they did not find any evidence of autoimmune hepatitis. But certainly it's something that we have to be aware of. And then also you want to look at their medications that they're taking. So besides alcohol, you know, other things that can cause fat in the liver are amiodarone, methotrexate, tamoxifen, steroids. So those are other things that you want to look at. So I think if you've successfully excluded any other reason for their liver disease, then it's fair at that point to call it non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And then I guess your follow-up question about what kind of assessment we should do to determine whether or not it's just simple steatosis, the NAFL versus the NASH, that's a little bit more challenging. At this point in time, the biopsy is really the gold standard to differentiate between the two. 
But I would say that what I do in clinical practice is I assess them for any type of fibrosis because we know that steatohepatitis is the type of NAFLD that will progress to fibrosis and then cirrhosis. And so if I see evidence of fibrosis on a non-invasive assessment test, either blood work or imaging, then I feel more comfortable saying, well, this is most likely NASH because they've already started to develop scarring in the liver. So let's go back to our patient we send off the serologies, and there's no clinical evidence of any of these other diagnoses, and the serologies come back and don't suggest those. What imaging do you do to assess them? There's a couple of different options. You know, there are some basic just blood tests that you can do to assess fibrosis. The two most common that we use, one is the FIB4, and this is a test that you just use with their basic blood work, so it takes into account their age, their AST, their ALT, and their platelet count, and this has a very good negative predictive value to rule out advanced fibrosis. And then the second test that we have based on blood work is the NAFLD fibrosis score. And so this has a few more variables, but still all very easy to obtain. So it looks at their age, their BMI, whether or not they have diabetes, the AST, ALT, the platelet count, and the albumin. And so you can plug this into a calculator on MD-Calc. And very similarly, it has very high sensitivity for F0 to F2 fibrosis, which is very, very low fibrosis. And then it has good specificity for advanced fibrosis as well. So very, very low scores are helpful and very high scores are helpful. And those numbers that fall in the middle are indeterminate and don't help us out as much. So I think those blood test calculations are the easiest to obtain because you already have that information when you're seeing them in the office. So that's a good place to start. And then furthermore, especially if you get those indeterminate values, then I think the next test and what I often order is elastography. And so there's a couple of different types of elastography. So vibration-controlled transient elastography is otherwise known as FibroScan, and that's used very commonly. So this measures the shear wave velocity as a shear wave passes through the liver, and higher velocities correlate with higher stiffness of the liver, which correlates with fibrosis. And so based on the kilopascal reading that we get, we can estimate whether they have no fibrosis, a little bit of fibrosis, or advanced fibrosis. And there's also another type of elastography called acoustic radiation force impact or ARFI elastography. And this is somewhat similar to FibroScan in that it can help us determine how much scarring is in the liver. So the elastography is fascinating. Before I forget, I actually did look at MDCalc yesterday and saw that all of these calculators are there. And I was really glad that you mentioned that that is easy enough for us to do ourselves. If we're concerned and we want to do these more advanced imaging tests, are they available most places or do we need to send them to a liver center? That varies. You know, it varies among centers who does this imaging. So some gastroenterologists and hepatologists will just do this in the office. The FibroScan is a portable device that we often have in the clinic. And then at other centers, it's done by the radiology department. So it kind of just depends. I would say more often than not, these are going to be in your bigger academic centers when you send someone to see a specialist and may not be obtainable for the community physician. So as someone who works at an academic medical center, if I wanted to get this done, I would send them to you and then you could get that done. We could figure out where we stand and I'd get a recommendation back about the best way to follow the patient. But if I was a rural doc, it's very unlikely I'm going to do it. So again, I'm going to need to refer the patient in to get this done. And the reason for that is so we can try to figure out how to manage them. Is there any way to treat these patients? 
there are some options for treatment that we have. So the most important thing is lifestyle modification. And this is what I spend the majority of the clinic visit talking to patients about. So lifestyle modification, really, we should be discussing with anyone who's overweight, who has high blood pressure, hyperlipidemia, and diabetes. And so we still are working on what the best diet is for these patients, but certainly anything that helps them lose weight helps. We know that if patients can lose more than 10% of their body weight, that they will see improvement in all features of their steatohepatitis. So the lobular inflammation improves, the balloon hepatocytes get better, the fibrosis can actually even get better as well. So that's the goal that I always talk to patients about is 10% of their body weight. And I try to calculate that for them to make it nice and easy so that they know the firm goal of how much weight they need to lose. But even if they're not successful in losing 10% of their body weight, even 5% can help to stabilize their disease or improve their fibrosis in a substantial percentage of patients. And then as far as specific diet recommendations, I think the data that we have is probably best for the Mediterranean type diet. And so I do spend some time going through that with them. So the Mediterranean diet really focuses on a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, really limiting processed foods. So I talked to them about cutting out the fast food, the fried food, things that come in a package, certainly anything with high fructose corn syrup. I also talked to them about avoiding concentrated sources of sugar, like full sugar soda, sweet tea, juice. Those things really are very low in nutritional value. And then also trying to switch the fats in their diet. So to switch them off of the saturated fats, which often come from beef and pork and cheeses and those sorts of things, and switch them over to avocados and olive oil and nuts and those healthier types of fat. So those are the lifestyle recommendations that I typically recommend. Certainly if they drink coffee, that can help as well. You don't want them loading up their coffee with sugar or cream, but black coffee has been inversely related to the amount of fibrosis in the liver. So I really think that lifestyle piece is the most important for these patients. So this sounds like getting them on this diet is going to help many of their problems because probably many of these patients have the complete metabolic syndrome and have diabetes and coronary artery disease, etc. And that improved diet can help all those things. Absolutely. And then in terms of moving forward past lifestyle modifications, you know, what do we have in terms of pharmacologic therapy? Well, at this point in time, there's no FDA-approved medications to treat NAFLD or NASH. And so there's over 20 or 30 medications that are currently in clinical trials. So in the next several years, I do think we're going to have more options. And certainly there was a lot of exciting data presented at the recent liver meeting. But at least right now, nothing is FDA approved. Some of the things that have been looked at, we know that metformin does not help the liver histology, although it certainly can be used for their diabetes. We don't use that for NASH. And then probably the best data that we have is really for pioglitazone and vitamin E. And this is from the PIVINS trial. And we know that patients who received either one of these medications did have significant improvement in the inflammation in the liver and the steatosis and as well as the fibrosis. But at least at this time from our AASLD guidelines, they don't really recommend using either one of these medications unless someone has biopsy-proven NASH. And, you know, biopsy is an invasive test, and so I don't often biopsy these patients if I don't need to. Pioglitazone also, unfortunately, has been associated with a decent amount of weight gain, so it's hard to take someone who already has a BMI of 40 and then put them on a medication that's going to make them gain 10 or 20 pounds. And so for that reason, I really don't prescribe pioglitazone very often. And then vitamin E, I think, is relatively harmless. I do sometimes give this to patients who do not have biopsy-proven NASH just because I think the risk of the medication are so low, and they certainly can see improvement in the liver test and the steatosis 
increases in inflammation with 800 units a day of vitamin E. So in reading this article and talking to you beforehand, this is rapidly becoming the most common reason for liver transplantation in this country. When should we call you? When should we refer someone to a hepatologist who has an interest in especially NASH? And are there some patients in whom we refer just to get the right diagnosis? And if they don't have NASH, they probably don't need to see a hepatologist. If they do have NASH, they probably do. Or what do you want from us as general internists? I think what's fair to ask is I think it's fair to ask for you to get some imaging like an ultrasound is very simple and that can tell us if there's steatosis in the liver with pretty good accuracy. So certainly some imaging I think is reasonable. If you want to go ahead and order that serologic workup and rule out other etiologies for liver disease, I think that's fair. Certainly if some of that serologic testing comes back positive and you're concerned that they may have autoimmune hepatitis or some other etiology, that's definitely a good reason to refer. Otherwise, I think it's probably best to use these non-invasive tests like the FIB4 score, the NAFLD fibrosis score as sort of your cutoff point. So if you do those scores on the patient and they are at the very low risk, have no or maybe just a little bit of fibrosis, that F0, F1 category, then those are patients I think you can feel safe following um, and just recommending those lifestyle modifications. But certainly anyone who has fibrosis, whether it's stage two, stage three, stage four, which is cirrhosis, those are the patients we want to see because we may be able to get them enrolled in clinical trials that we have going on and have access to. And certainly in patients with cirrhosis, we really need to have a heart to heart about, you know, they've really got to make some lifestyle changes or they may be headed towards liver transplant. Obviously, if anyone has decompensated cirrhosis with ascites or hepatic encephalopathy, variceal bleeding, those types of complications, we obviously want to follow those patients very closely. And hopefully we can get the patients to you prior to that happening so that if they do progress, at least we'll have you knowing the patient and being able to do whatever is possible to try to prevent that progression. This has just been really, really good discussion for me. I've been confused and I feel a little bit less confused now in understanding how to approach these patients and how to understand the different diagnoses. Why don't you take one or two minutes to really give all the listeners your big take-home messages? So my big take-home messages would be if you see patients in your clinic who have elevated liver tests and they have metabolic risk factors, please do some sort of assessment of their fibrosis, certainly these FIB4 NAFLD fibrosis scores. And then if they have fibrosis, even if they don't, please talk to them about lifestyle modification. This really is so important, not only for their liver disease, but also all of their metabolic comorbidities. And then obviously any scar tissue that started to develop in the liver at all, please feel free to refer. We want to see these patients. We want to get them enrolled in clinical trials and really talk with them about their risk for progressing to cirrhosis so we can halt that disease where it is. Megan, thank you so much. This has just been great, and I'm sure all the listeners are just appreciative of how clearly you made this complicated topic, as I am. Well, you're very welcome. Thanks again for having me. It's time for Bob's Pearls. This brilliant discussion of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease enables me to think of several points that I really want to remember The first is Dr. Gray pointed out that even milder elevations of ALT than I previously had understood could be abnormal and signs of early liver disease. When I suspect non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, she recommends, as does the article, using the FIB4 
and the NAFLD fibrosis scores as ways to stratify patients that may need further study. Patients with low scores likely just have non-alcoholic fatty liver. Those with higher scores could have non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. In those patients, we may consider getting elastography if we can get it at our institution. It also goes by the name of FibroScan. If you don't have it at your institution, it may be worthwhile to refer to a liver center. The final thing is the best treatment we have in 2019 is lifestyle modification. If patients can lose 10% of body weight, this often will show regression of their non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. I hope you've learned a lot from this podcast because I certainly have. Thank you for listening. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.